Let's give them another round of applause, church. So glad you guys could be here. Uh, good morning. Welcome to Citadel Square if you're new. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Why don't you, if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and uh, turn all the way to the right. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the pew rack in front of you, a black one. Uh, push your neighbor and grab it from them and uh, take it. This is an important text uh, with where we've been in the book of Revelation. Uh, This is the text that we called this sermon, All Things New. And man, uh, we have been waiting for Revelation chapter 21, haven't we? Haven't you? You've been looking forward uh, to what is going to happen here in this text together this morning. So what we've got is um, we're going to spend some time right at the end, the last paragraph of Revelation chapter 20. And then we're going to go into the first paragraph of Revelation 21. And I did that for a reason, because it's going to juxtapose two very important ideas. Um, Let me tell you just about my week for a second. I I took my son uh, to get baseball pictures, and I ended up talking to a guy for, I don't know, probably 15 minutes or so, and we started talking about the line of work that he was in, and um, he was talking about, he was in his late 30s, I'm in my early 40s, so I, so I thought, oh, uh, you know, we're kind of in the same stage of life. And uh, we talked for a little bit, and he started talking about the, the amount of money that he had made in his line of work. And the longer I talked to him, the more I started recognizing, like, oh, he's driving a $60,000 truck. Oh, he's wearing a $10,000 watch. Uh, and I was wearing the Citadel Square t-shirt. If you, you know, if you want to shut down conversation real fast, uh, I'll tell you what happened in the, in the conversation. We started talking. He goes, oh, Citadel Square, you must work for the Citadel. I go, no, I don't, I don't work for the Citadel. Citadel Square is downtown. It used to be the square, and I work for a church. And the conversation turned off like that. And he was, he was pleasant, it was nice, but you could tell this conversation. I mean, he was talking about making $60,000 commissions in his line of work. And it was, those were the, the things that were coming out of his mouth. Uh, I talked to a grandmother this week who was watching her grandson. Uh, and she was talking about his, his future and his hopes and his dreams and the sports that he loved to play and what her son-in-law was doing and the new house that they were building and uh, where she had been in her life and the sports that she played growing up. I talked to a mom who had three daughters and a boy, and she was talking about how her daughters are getting ready to make decisions about their college future and what is ahead of them and how she's struggling over the kinds of friends that her college-age daughter has and uh, the difficulty that they're feeling in their family and the bad choices that they have made in the history of their family that she feels uh, were being experienced by her daughters at that time in life. And all through these conversations this week, I've been meditating on Revelation chapter 20 and Revelation chapter 21. And as you look at these texts that we're going to look at here today, we're going to come to judgment day. We're going to come to the final moment of the old creation that is going to bring you face to face with the great white throne. And as these conversations were rolling around in my head, I I couldn't 
help but think about a quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote a book. He was a, a famous, somewhat Christian thinker of the past hundred years. And he wrote a book called The Weight of Glory. And in The Weight of Glory, he says this. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as now you meet it, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealing with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, we work with, we marry, we snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And the weight of that idea, the weight of that quote can only be explained by the text that we're going to look at here today. From the beginning of your Bible all the way to the end. And this moment in Revelation chapter 20 is tainted by the shadow of the deception of the devil who has said, you will not surely die. And if nothing else, this text shows us that judgment day is inevitable. Judgment day is specific. Judgment day is appropriate. And ultimately, Judgment Day will result in you spending eternity, an everlasting future, somewhere. So this text that we're going to look at here today is meant to do two big things. It's meant to shake you. And for those of you who know Christ, it's meant to solidify you. It's meant in all that I'm gonna say, and all this text is gonna show us in the next few moments, it's meant to equip you for that moment. So with those ideas in mind, let's pray and look here at Revelation chapter 20. Father, for these few minutes that we spend looking into your word, we pray that you would give us light, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us insight into things, Father, that are very clear and plain to you, but to us are so often veiled and misunderstood and unclear. No doubt there are many who come into this place here this morning feeling deceived about the character of God, the nature of sin, the purity of holiness, the certainty of judgment day. I pray that the fog of uncertainty the fog of past messages that they've heard that are deceptive as to who you are and what is at stake with our lives would be blown away and that through the simple clarity of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, we might, as Psalm 90 says, present to you hearts of wisdom. That we would leave this service 
as we go out into the days ahead, living with a captivated focus on the horizon of eternity, that we would live with the great day of judgment in mind and would order our days appropriately. We pray for your grace and your kindness through your word and through the mighty name of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. Let me tell you where we've been in Revelation 20 thus far. We've had the dismantling of the world, one world power in ancient Babylon in Revelation chapter uh, 17 and 18. You had the return of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19 where he fought the final battle against the Antichrist and false prophet, both of whom have been thrown into the lake of fire. We had the millennium in Revelation 20, 1 through 10 that we looked at last week where Satan was released to deceive the nations, to lead one final rebellion against Jesus Christ. It has been squashed and now Satan himself has been thrown into the lake of fire and all that is left is what's called the, um, the second resurrection, which will be now the resurrection of the dead that you'll see here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Take a look at there, Revelation 20, verse 11, and we'll work through it here together. Then I saw a great white throne. A throne gives you an image of royalty, does it not? That all through this book, we said this last week, the idea of the throne has been either valid authority or usurped authority. Usurped authority. That it has been the, co- the combat that has been happening throughout this book has been who has the right to judge? Who ultimately has the authority to bring about the ultimate purposes of God? And now at the end of this book, we see a great white throne which signifies its absolute purity, full of righteousness. The Psalms say that the foundation of your throne is justice and righteousness. And we're about to have divine decrees come from this throne. So the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan himself have all been thrown into the lake of fire. Take a look here. Him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. Now, is there another spot in your Bible? What you're going to see here in in these next few verses are the categorical spheres of creation. What do I mean by that? I mean the basic building blocks of all of creation. You're going to see them completely eliminated and washed away. Here you have earth and sky that depart. You're about to have the sea that is mentioned as being no more. Is there a spot in your Bible where it talks about God, heavens, earth, and sea? Where is it? What chapter of your Bible? It's the very first chapter in your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, that begins all of God's creation from nothing except for his word. And now what you're about to see in Revelation chapter 20 is the decreation, the uncreation of all that God has created. Now, I want to show you this. We are not going to get to the end of the earth because an asteroid hits. We aren't going to get to the end of the earth because global warming goes bonkers and you start driving diesel cars. That's not going to bring about the end of the earth. The end of the earth and the universe as we know it is going to be violently, severely, completely eradicated by God himself. He will bring it all together to nothing. I want to show you this. Keep your finger in in Revelation. Turn to 2 Peter 
chapter 3. Just turn back to your left a little bit. You'll hit Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, and then you'll see 2nd Peter. 2nd Peter chapter 3, take a look at verse uh, 10. In context here, Peter is talking about individuals who are called scoffers. They say everything has gone on since the days of our fathers. Nothing has changed. God's not going to show up. God's not going to eventually judge. Everything goes on the way it always has gone. We're always going to have uh, life be the way it is. Now look at 2 Peter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Literally, exposed isn't a bad translation of that word, but it literally means to be found, that it will be seen. Everything that's going to be done upon the earth will one day have the covers pulled back, everything will be destroyed, the elements will be set on fire, what Peter is about to say. Look at the next verse, verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see what Peter just did? Peter just put your Monday morning obedience, your Monday morning uh, godliness and holiness in the context of God melting the heavens and the earth. He says that there's coming a day when everything will be set on fire, everything will be burned, everything will be eliminated, and all that will be left is mankind and God. Okay? You got that in your brain? Now turn back to Revelation. Because the elimination of all of creation, the entire created order of heavens and earth is going to leave something behind. It's going to leave something that as yet, what Peter says there, is to be discovered, is to be found, is to be seen. That once we eliminate all of our houses and the earth and the magma and the crust and the volcanoes and the oceans and the stars... And the solar systems, all of creation is going to blink out of existence. And all that is going to be left is a great white throne in mankind. All that is left is you and I standing before the throne. Now let me pause just for a minute. This is a resurrection of the unrighteous, unregenerate dead. The judgment for believers does not happen here. The judgment for believers happened at the cross. That's why Paul can say in Revelation, or, uh, Romans chapter 8, there is now no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is why I spent a whole sermon talking about how in Christ the wrath of God has been removed. That Jesus Christ is the propitiation, the wrath bearer for our sins. It has been taken away. Will Christians face a judgment. We will, but it will be a judgment for deeds done in the body. If you want to read more on that, read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's another sermon for another day. That's not the point of our text here today, but that is a judgment that believers will uh, experience, where as they live lives in faith for the glory of God, they will receive one day a reward. 
And as they build their lives on a faithless, world-focused, selfish kind of existence, they will face loss of reward. That idea is in the scriptures. That's not the point here, though. So I'm going to skip that idea. You can, like I said, read that later. But here's the point. The evaporation, the elimination of all creation is going to leave God and unregenerate, unregenerate sinful humanity face to face. That means the things that you do, if you are outside of Jesus Christ, will one day face a reckoning. One day you will stand before the throne of God. And you will face a judge who is absolutely righteous, absolutely pure, absolutely holy, and who will give you what your sins deserve. That is plain and clear from the scriptures. Look at verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small. These are the successful the royalty of our culture, those who have accomplished as much as possible in the worldly realm, societally, vocationally, economically, these are those who are at the heights of their power during their time on earth. Put right next to the small, the overlooked, the inconspicuous, those with no Twitter followers, those who nobody knows, the easily ignored, the ones that would be passed by very simply on the street. And the great and the small now stand before the great white throne. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The, the biblical account of judgment takes into, uh, into consideration every single thought that you have ever had. Psalm 90 says, our secret sins are brought to light in your presence. Psalm 90 verse 8. Jesus says that on the day of judgment, mankind will give an account for every careless word that they have spoken. These books are a record of every single thing that you have ever thought, spoken, done, and even more, things that you have hidden. Romans chapter 2 says that on that day, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Verse 13, the sea gave up its dead who were in it. That means that uh, if you have been buried in sea, if you have been eaten by crabs, that God can put you back together, remember your life, and present you before the great white throne. That even those who have been cremated, those who, this would be the idea of those being lost at sea, as if their lives now uh, do not matter anymore and everything that they've done has been forgotten. God says, I will resurrect them from the ocean itself. And they will stand before the great white throne and they will give an account of their lives. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Remember, death and Hades were personified in this book. All the way back in Revelation chapter 6 when we saw the four horsemen go forth. The fourth horseman was, a, was death and Hades followed with him. They're personified realities here. That death is, is the doorway. Hades is the place and the holding point of the unrighteous dead. 
who are awaiting judgment. And now what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1, which began this whole book, is that I have the keys of death and Hades, which means I have the authority to open death and Hades and call forth those who are waiting for judgment day. So that when Jesus says in John chapter 5 that the judgment has been entrusted to the Son, that Jesus now will be the one who sits on the throne and judges every thought, every word, every deed, every secret of unregenerate man. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Steve, are there levels of hell? Probably not. There are probably not levels of hell. It's all one big lake of fire, it seems. The eternal reality that goes forth is an eternal torment, pain, and suffering for all of everlasting future eternity. But it does seem here that while all will suffer torment, not all will suffer equal amounts of torment. That you have those who've committed sins of genocide on a broad scale, culturally, and um, when it comes to countrywide. You think about the Hitlers of the world who, who killed six million Jews. Will he face the same kind of judgment as a woman who spent her entire life in church thinking, thinking that she could perform for her salvation? Will they be equal in God's sight? No, it doesn't seem like they will that they will both experience torment, but one will be on a much more severe level than another. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. We mentioned that last week, the lake of fire. That the, un, the unbelieving dead who refuse Jesus Christ, who refuse to repent for their sins, to refuse to receive the grace of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ will face the end of their life will go to Hades, will one day be resurrected and given a specifically um, resurrection body, as it were, that will endure the eternal wrath of God for all time. And here, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That means the final enemy that Paul talks about. We read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 here this morning. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That now death and Hades, the symbols of the shadow that has uh, been over all of the old creation, is finally scrubbed away and thrown into the lake of fire itself. Verse 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I'm a pastor, and I don't know where you are today. Maybe you walked in the back door of a church and you said, man, this is a different text than I expected to hear at church. Maybe you have spent your life trying hard to be a good person. Maybe nobody has ever told you the reality that you will spend eternity somewhere. And I feel it's my responsibility and it's our responsibility to speak to you honestly about the situation that you are in. That outside of Jesus Christ, you are going to hell. You will face unrelenting torment, pain, and suffering in a joyless, eternal existence apart from the glory of God. If you come in this morning and you, and you were to stand before the great white throne, 
and you were to give an accounting of your life, as the scriptures are clear in multiple places, that is appointed to a man to die and then to face judgment, what answer are you going to give before the great white throne? Before the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and sees through every insinuation, every manipulation, every attempt that we make to present ourselves as more righteous than we really are. Before the one who can search out all lies, all thoughts, every single thing that I have ever done, every single careless word that I have spoken, what hope do you have? And if you were to tell me or to tell any Christian in this room that you are going to stand before the great white throne and say, I've done some pretty good things. My parents were both Christian missionaries. I haven't murdered anyone. I've been a law-abiding citizen. Then what you are doing in that moment is creating a resume that Paul says in the book of Romans is storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Because if you were to speak to a Christian in this room, and you were to ask a Christian, what hope do you have of being able to stand before the great white throne of God's pure, holy, righteous justice. A Christian takes that long. A Christian says, I have no righteousness of my own. I have no hope in my performance during my time on earth. In fact, the record of my sins rightly condemns me. that I do not stand there confident of anything other in that Jesus Christ has clothed me with his righteousness and that his blood speaks a better word, Hebrews says, than the blood of Abel. You know what the blood of Abel is? It's the blood of condemnation. It's the blood of Genesis chapter 4 that says his blood is crying out to me for justice from the ground. See, a Christian says that we have no righteousness of our own. A Christian says we don't even try to be hypocrites. We quickly confess. We quickly apologize because we quickly and efficiently recognize how wretched our sin is. And we run desperately to the feet of Jesus Christ in whom there is forgiveness of sins. Psalm 51 says that, uh, I think it's Psalm 51, says, with you is forgiveness of sins that you might be feared. That we might recognize when we stand before the throne of God, we have no hope unless I have an advocate. I spent time, that we had a neighbor a couple years ago who, uh, whose home was broken into. And they tried to steal a TV. And the guy stole the TV, hopped the fence in my backyard, and ran across the backyard with a TV in his arms. I mean, they were not brilliant criminals. They were picked up by the police like, I don't know, 15 minutes. You know, you see a guy running down. Like, there he is. That's the guy. Uh, and I went with uh, the, the husband was not at home at the time. 
or I think he was home, but he couldn't be at the bond hearing. If you ever go, have to get a chance to go to a bond hearing, it's fascinating. I, I, I love learning in that context because we talk about judicial wrath and righteousness all the time, right? That's like the substitutionary atonement and somebody being an advocate is a part of the whole Christian idea, right? Okay, okay, good. So I'm in bond court. Bond court is, it's, you know, it is what it is. And I'm sitting there in the back and I'm watching. And I brought a, a buddy of mine. We're both sitting there back. And we went with the wife just to be moral support. And she came up uh, and the people are brought in, but they're not brought into the room. They're brought in on the TV. And you see them in a room and the police officers bring them in. They leave them there. They shut the door and the guy's in his clothes, his outfit, whatever. And, uh, and then you had an opportunity to have a public defender or a lawyer or somebody who would come and that would speak on behalf of the accused individual. And this woman who lived next door to us went up, up to the, you know, she went to the lectern and she you know, hit, the, hit the mic and she spoke to the judge and she lasted like four seconds before she started crying because she was just scared. And there's this individual on the, on the uh, thank you, the TV screen, and the judge in the black robes over here and asking what kind of statement would you like to make and the individuals who ran off with the TV had no public defender. They had no one to speak up for them. And I thought, boy, this is going to be a great illustration. Isn't it? Because you're waiting for that individual to say, I will stand in the way. I will stand in the gap. I will be the one who speaks on behalf of the wicked and the condemned. When I was a boy, one of the verses that, that grabbed me as a kid was a verse from Matthew chapter 10. Uh, sorry. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this. I don't, think, I, don't know, I don't think this happens here. I think this happens for every single Christian the moment they die. But this is Matthew 10. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. But Jesus says something similar over in Luke chapter 12 where he talks about acknowledging your name, my name, those Christians before the angels of heaven. And what you have here is, are, are two records, essentially two witnesses. Everything that I have ever done, every thought, every word, every deed, compared with the Lamb's book of life. And they're put in juxtaposition so that you might know, I, as an unbeliever in Jesus Christ, I have both rejected the Lamb and earned the righteous recompense for my sin. You with me? That both are realities, but if your name is in the Lamb's book of life, you have passed from death to life, from judgment to no judgment, from captivity to sin to freedom and joy and righteousness. You with me? And this verse reoriented my heart because I started to recognize that in my life, I was 10 or 11, that that made a lot of sense to me that I can either choose to live my life on this planet for the glory of Jesus Christ and his name, or I can live for myself. And all of those lined up for me when I was a boy. So that if this is new to you, please, please repent. Please turn. Please run to the forgiveness that is available in Jesus Christ. Please. It is that serious. Now, 
These two passages are right next to each other for a reason, because it shows you the eternity of all people right next to each other. So if you're a Christian in this room, I want to show you what Revelation chapter 21 has to say to you. Look at Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. God, through his word, created the first creation. God, through his word, will decreate the old creation. And then God, through his word, will recreate a new heavens and a new earth. But there's a very interesting thing that is in our current creation that is not in the new creation. Now, all through these next eight verses that I want to show you, John gives us, God gives us in his word, truths that can only really be explained by removing ideas that to us are so common. He can't, it's kind of, it's describing the, true, the future reality by the negative, which is a weird way to do it, but the realities of these next few verses to us just live with us. You live in a sinful world and it's like the, the frog in the boiling pot of water. You just get used to it. You just get used to, well, that's just the way it is. And this section begins with saying the old heavens and the earth. How much of your life is lived in the old heavens and the old earth? All of it. Your whole life is. Your whole reality and the way that you see and walk and live is all based on a reality that one day will be completely removed and will be replaced by a brand new 2.0 version of the heavens and the earth. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now try to imagine that. The sea covers 70% of our earth. And now here's this new heavens and new earth. No ocean whatsoever. Anybody a mountain person? I like to go to the mountains to relax and relax. Anybody like going to the beach? You're going to be super disappointed in the new heavens and the new earth. I'm a beach person. I'm disappointed. But think about what has come out of the sea in the book of Revelation. The beast came out of the sea. Where did you see judgment fall in the book of Revelation? A third of the, of the waters struck down. A third of the sea life died. A third, the whole oceans have been turned to blood. All the springs of water have been turned to blood. Now everything that moves forward in this book when it comes to water all has to do with life. So the sea is this metaphorical picture of evil out of which comes the, um, the evil and the wickedness of this world. And now in this new heavens and new earth, it will be no longer stained by evil. That we can't even imagine that. We can't even imagine living, I mean, if I was living on a new heavens and new earth, I'd ruin it immediately. Imagine the entire world being made new. Verse 2, here comes the capital of this new world, new earth. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Consistently, from Revelation 19 forward, you have seen God's new city, his new dwelling place, his new people, described as a bride. 
in contrast to the prostitute riding a beast. Here comes. Now, all of Revelation 19, 20, 21 is a picture of the wedding day. It's a picture of the engagement period the, uh, that happens between God and his people. It's a picture of the millennial kingdom, which is this long-standing party that happens in the ancient Near East before wedding day. And then ultimately, it's the consummation of the relationship between the husband and the wife that is here. Here comes the bride, who now has a earth that has been completely wiped of the stain of sin and deception and death and darkness. And now the capital city of this new creation arrives from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned, with, uh, adorned for her husband. That now we are about to have what gets explained next as this arrival of the new heavenly Jerusalem touches down on the earth, we're about to have the longing of the hearts of every Christian answered. Do you have some things, some prayers that are as of yet unanswered? No? Do you attend this church? Okay, good. Have you, can you see me right now? You have longings and desires that are deep in your hearts. I have longings and desires that are unyet, that are not yet fulfilled. The longing that characterizes the psalm when David says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere is about to be fulfilled right here. Verse three, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is is Genesis 1 and 2. This is the the brokenness that characterizes Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 20, where God evicts Adam and Eve from the garden saying, I can no longer be with you. I can no longer walk among you. It's the promise of Leviticus 18 that when the tabernacle is set up for God's people Israel, he says, I will walk among you and I will be with you as your God. And this is the way it's going to happen. There's going to have to be a holiness code. There's going to have to be rights and wrongs and sacrifices and ways that we can interact so that you would acknowledge that your sin is the great thing that blocks our fellowship and that I will dwell among you in the Ark of the Covenant, but nobody can go in. Nobody can touch it unless they die. Only one person, the high priest, can come in with blood for the sin of the nation to allow me to dwell with you. It's the anticipation and the frustration that the apostles had when John 1 opens and says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, he tabernacled among us. The frustration the apostles had, the discouragement they had when they discovered that the God-man Jesus Christ who is called Emmanuel is now going away to prepare a place for them. The longing of the Christian's heart to see God, to know God, to be with God in intimate relationship has finally been fulfilled. What is eliminated? There is no more distance. Distance. 
that the distance you feel between God will one day and ultimately be eliminated and you will be with him as your God and you will be with him as his people. Isn't that frustrating? Don't you, don't you, aren't you frustrated by that, that now you pray to a person you cannot see and you trust a book that you try to read and try to understand and somehow God mediates his relationship with us through the intercession of the God-man Jesus Christ? And that you live your life based on truths that you know are a reality about Jesus and who he is and what he has done and make faith-filled decisions as you walk about your life and then one day you will see him. One day it will be eye to eye, face to face. He will be with you and you will be with him. The promise of John chapter 20 where Jesus talks to Mary Magdalene and says, I am ascending to my God and to your God, to my Father and to your Father. That relationship will one day be whole. You know what this says to me? This says, this puts an end to this idea that Jesus loves me and Jesus dies for me, but he doesn't like hanging out with me that much. That he prefers to have this kind of like, we're business friends relationship, not true intimacy. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus says, believe, you believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. God does not just love you. He likes you, and he wants to spend time with you. Has anybody ever told you that? That you don't have to labor under this mild disappointment from God in your relationship with him. He loves you and has forgiven you and will one day spend eternity with you forever because he loves being with you. Has anybody ever told you that? Is that, is that new to anyone? That you're going to get to heaven and be like, I don't know, I'm going to live on the outskirts because God definitely doesn't want me around. He doesn't know the stuff that I've done. And rather, the picture you have here is the picture of the prodigal's dad who runs to see him, to be with him, to be around him, to clothe him, to, cut, to sacrifice the fatted calf and said, my son is home. He's here. I love that he's here. I love that he's back. No more distance. Verse four, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall it be mourning nor crying, <clears throat> nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You know, even as I thought about this verse in light of our church, I thought about the cancer diagnosis, I thought about the, the loss of parents, I thought about the loss of spouses, I thought about the loss of kids. That I, those, are just, those are just things that immediately come to mind in our church. all the things in our lives that are characterized by death, we can't even imagine a new heavens and a new earth that is not characterized by death. It is so common to us that this is why I think a lot of these conversations that I'll have with people try to push off eternity because they really have no concept of life without death that our hope and our effort and our work are, are 
striving to make sense of our lives here on an earth that one day will be, what Isaiah says, is get rolled up like a garment and thrown away. That I think about the the mourning and the difficulty and the hardship and the pain that 300 people in this room have gone through last week, last year, the last 10 years, that are going through even today And to read Revelation 21, verse 4, that Jesus himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. That he will take away mourning. He will take away pain. He will take away regret. He will take away disappointment. He will take away everything that is characterized by your life in a sinful world. How much of your life is lived in a sinful, broken world? All of it. He will reverse it all. I mean, think about that for a half hour and see if that doesn't begin to reorder the affections of your heart. You know what this tells me? This tells me that the, the, um, the difficulties on earth, the loss of parents or spouses or kids or cancer diagnosis or pain or discouragement or loss of career uh, are not the truest thing about ourselves. Paul says that these light and momentary afflictions are working for us a weight of glory. The, uh, the stories of hardship or abuse or failure will one day be wiped away and they will be called not familiar things. They'll be called what? Former things. They used to be. But now into an everlasting future, I will experience divine comfort and kindness and pleasure and joy and all of the former things associated with my previous life will now be washed away. Amen? Amen. Verse 21, 21 verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. He also said, I love this. Now, uh, an angel has told John to write stuff down. Uh, Revelation 19 told John to write stuff down. Now God himself, Jesus, told John in Revelation 3, 3 and 4, write this down. And now at the end, you have a promise of all new things. And Jesus says to John, write it down. For these words are trustworthy and true. See, not only are my pains of this life, my mourning, my weeping, my crying, my discouragements, my despairs, not only the truest thing about me, but now the truth of God and the new heavens and the new earth become the compass by which I live my life now. Why would John say that if not to reorder your Monday morning? Right? Write this down. This is trustworthy and true. This is something that you can count on that can reorder your affections and your plans and your desires and your ambitions during your life on this sinful world which one day will be completely eliminated and eradicated by God. Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Now, he turns. It's almost, remember how um, just two chapters ago, 
John sees all of this glory and he starts worshiping an angel. Remember that? And the angel goes, hey, John, quit it. You're embarrassing yourself here. We got to write this down now. Now, I think these last two verses are the application. These last two verses begin to, to shake you out of this mental view where you are only seeing the glory of the future, which I think is an important thing to do. It's important that we set our minds on things above. But now, Jesus turns to John and he says, verse six, to me. He says, it's done, which means I have brought to completion all of what I started back in Revelation chapter six. Remember Revelation chapter five was who is worthy to open the scroll and to look into it? Only the lamb. And here's the lamb again saying, it's done. I have brought to completion the judgment of the Antichrist, the judgment of the false prophet, the judgment of the deceiver, the ancient serpent of the earth. I have judged all sin in every place with every person and I've thrown them into the lake of fire and now I have created a new heavens and a new earth, thus bringing to end all of my purposes from the beginning of time until now, it's finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Remember how this book started? I'm the Alpha and I'm the Omega. The beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Remember, the sea is gone. The salt water is gone in the new heavens and the new earth. But the references to pure water at this point refer to eternal life. That in the new, new Jerusalem, there will be a river of life coming from the throne and from the Lamb that will give life, that we now will live in the new heavens and the new earth based upon two things that we need, light that comes alone from the glory of God and water that comes alone from the river of life. That they will be the foundation of our existence for all eternity. And all what do you gotta do to get it? All you gotta do is thirst. What did Jesus say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be... Thank you, Amy Lee. Y'all talk to Amy Lee afterwards and she will give you an answer to that question. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. What do you need to come into right relationship with God? You have to thirst. You have to recognize that during your time and your life on earth, nothing can satisfy the deepest desires of who you are except God himself. So John, write it down. You probably have a cross-reference there that it's Isaiah 55. Do you have that? You have Isaiah 55 right there in the margin of verse 6. It says this, Isaiah 55, I'll just read it. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. If you have heard during our time today, and you have put yourself in one of two camps, recognizing that you are either on the road to hell or the road to the new Jerusalem, and you've recognized, Steve, I'm on the road to hell, then the invitation from God himself is to come and drink freely of what he provides. Righteousness, joy, salvation, forgiveness of sins, grace of God, you can have that today. And this text ends on a minor note for a very important reason. 
lest you leave thinking about the new Jerusalem and not apply it to your day today. Look at verse eight. I'm sorry, seven, we got one more to go. Don't wanna skip that one. The one who conquers will have this heritage. This is his inheritance. I will be his God and he will be my son. We're reminded again that the longing of every human heart is to be reconciled to God. To recognize that there is a place where I am in the family where I am no longer an orphan, no longer uncertain about my relationship to God, but now I can receive the heavenly welcome of God and Jesus Christ himself, knowing that I am in the family of God. This is what John chapter one says. When John writes about who Jesus is and how he came into the world, he says, to all who received him, to believe, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How do, I become, how do I become a child of God? You trust, you lay down your hope in your own righteousness and submit to what God alone can provide through Jesus Christ. And you now are welcomed the same as Jesus is in heaven. Now verse eight, here's your minor key. Here, as for the cowardly. Now this is kind of a categorical list of sins that characterize all of the book of Revelation and elsewhere, but I wanna draw your attention just to one big idea as we close. The cowardly. That word cowardly is only used in two other places in your Bible, and they're both in the accounts of Jesus' calming the wind and the waves. And it's Jesus asking his disciples, why are you, this word, cowardly, why are you afraid? As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is my concern for you. This is my concern for every Christian in this room. This is my concern for if you have not come to the knowledge of who Jesus is. You're gonna leave here today and you're gonna begin to make decisions that feel like they're wise because you are going to take an account of all of the things about life in this sinful world and in this sinful creation. And you may make some decisions in your life that make a lot of sense to the people you work with, that make a lot of sense to the families you live in, that make a lot of sense to your parents or your friends. And they will be decisions that will be relatively unexamined. And for the most part, we are called to live lives of wisdom. But at some point, we have to make a decision about making our choices in life based upon eyes of faith or eyes of the flesh. And you will get a lot of people to agree with you about making decisions based upon the eyes of the flesh, because they'll feel wise. They'll feel like I'm providing for my future. They'll feel like I'm securing my career. They'll feel like I'm preserving my life. And Jesus flips it on his head. He says, those who seek to save their life here will lose it. But those who lose their life here will find it. And my concern for you is that you would spend your life making decisions with eyes of the flesh, with things that you see and that make a lot of sense to you and your culture and your society and your families and your friends and your coworkers. 
but you'd begin to silence living a life of faith that looks forward to this day, that looks forward to the time that displays your one and true ultimate hope, which is either going to be your life here or your life there. And my concern for our church, my concern for you as a Christian is that you would live lives of faith, that you would see where you are headed and you would begin to reorient your life and that you would start to make distinctive faith decisions about your money, about your sexual purity, about your vocational choices, about your uh, parenting, about the words that you use with your spouse, about the words that you use with your friends, about whether or not you will stand for Christ at your workplace. Because you are facing the decision of living faith by fear Living, I'm sorry, living a life based upon fear or living a life based upon faith. May God give us the wisdom to know the difference. Father in heaven, Revelation 20 and 21 are sobering texts. Father, I pray today that the things that I have said would not dissuade or discourage someone from taking a step away from Jesus Christ. He is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father. No one comes to the new Jerusalem but by him. No one ultimately comes home unless it's through Christ. So, Father, we pray that your spirit would make plain the things that are in your word, that we would live our lives with sobriety. For those who are suffering in this room and uncertain that you love them, I pray that this text would give light to their eyes and that they'd be reminded of the comfort and the kindness and the desire that you have to be with us and to dwell with your people. And, Father, we think of the words of the great hymn that before the throne of God, We have a strong and perfect plea. The great high priest whose name is love, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name for his sake. Amen.